in association with the Museum of the Antiquities Project. This is Ancient Rome Refocused with your host, Rob Kane. History for the Brave. Welcome to episode 29 of Ancient Rome Refocused. The title of this podcast is Romans Go Home. And if you're wondering what I'm referring to, I'm talking about the protest sign from the 1960s where it said Yankees go home. Well, anyway, let's move on. On this episode, we have Anna Koriminos, a teaching fellow in Hellenic and Modern Greek Studies at Western Connecticut State University and lecturer of ancient history at the following university. We're a school of passionate academics, strong athletics, and a vibrant community. And you gotta get our name right. It's Quinnipiac. 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 Quinn. Uh, P. Ack. It's Quinnipiac. We're Quinnipiac, and we're here to stay. Come fall, she will be in charge of running the Hellenic and Modern Greek Studies program. I have interviewed celebrities, army generals, actors, and historians, but the scariest are academics, at least for me. Don't ask me to explain why, other than it's like having an overwhelming fear of wearing two different colored socks on a job interview. Actually, a more apt description would be that I forgot to do the assigned reading for class. However, my concerns were unfounded. She was open and conversational. She was willing to give and take and had extreme patience for the podcaster that struggled to find his words. I found something interesting on our website. It is titled, Rate Your Professor. A student gave her overwhelming praise that could only come from a millennial as he called her awesome. His critique had the following sentence. The final exam on Meditations of Marcus Aurelius forced me to read one of the greatest books ever written. Somehow I find this amusing. I'm chuckling to myself at the word forced. The student called it one of the greatest books ever written. And what's more, his review of Meditations shows that Anna imparted to the student a deep love of classical studies. So it is fitting that she should be our guide. By the way, before we start the interview, I want to share something with you. We conducted the interview over Zoom, and for some reason, I had the overwhelming feeling that I had laid eyes on her before. Well, I'm going to save that for the end of the interview. Keep listening. Anna? Uh, considering the fact that I am uh, trying to make comparisons be between the ancient world and now, you seem to point it out in your paper... Uh, which I think was titled Misperceptions or Perceptions of the Roman Period in Greece. Is that the correct title? Yes. Romeokratia, which means um, Roman occupation, does not equal Roman occupation. Misperceptions of the Roman Period in Greece. Let's face it. I mean, the entire country of what is now modern Greece was not exactly occupied by the Romans in a military sense. I mean, you have many areas of Greece where the Roman army was never stationed and apart from like the far north at some point. In general, my interest in the ancient world has been um, somewhat diachronic and 
also rather eclectic, I should say. Um, as a child, I was really interested in ancient Egypt. So, you know, mummies, Cleopatra, that sort of thing. A lot of young people and children are interested in that. And um, like many kids, uh, by that time, um, I was interested, of course, in ancient Egypt, as I said, but by the time I became a teenager, I became interested in Greek and Roman myth, which I had not studied before, or had not read about it before. So this basically led to an interest in Greek and Roman history. Um, when I went to college, I went to the City University of New York, I studied anthropology and archaeology, and I had the opportunity to attend an excavation on the island of Crete at a site um, on the foothills of Mount Ida, which is kind of in central Crete. It was called Eleftherna. It's still a very beautiful site and um, a great excavation. So the material we were basically excavating at that site in Crete was mostly from the Iron Age. So the Iron Age is basically from the 10th century BC to the 8th century BC. But what was interesting about the site was that the opposite side of the hill, um, the one that we were not excavating, had material of the Roman period. So houses, um, public buildings, baths. And this material was kind of, you know, relegated to people that didn't really care that much about it in terms of publishing it. And it was seen as inferior to kind of the earlier material um, in Crete. Um, and then I observed this sort of anti-Roman attitude in museums and archaeological sites throughout Greece um, as a PhD student when I would go there to um, do research for my PhD. And um, clearly to me, it, it became really clear that there was a period bias going on in Greece. Of course, I had some inkling about this even before I started my PhD, but during my PhD, I was like, okay, there's definitely something going on here and it needs to be addressed. So that's how it all got started. And that's how my paper came about in a way. Okay, so uh, what is the premise of your paper and why is it important to archeology span or history itself? Yeah, so um, the paper you read, the Romeocratia does not equal Roman occupation, misperceptions of the Roman period in Greece, it basically argues that the Roman period in Greece, which as you know very well, lasted for more or less 600 years, depending on which part of Greece uh, we're talking about. Um, the Roman period has been neglected in the modern Greek national narrative. So this is mainly because Greeks today view this period in their country's history as a negative period, as I said, and because it's considered a negative period, it's not worth remembering. So much like the Ottoman period, right? The period of um, Ottoman Turkish rule, which lasted from 1453 to 1830 in most of Greece, um, in some of Greece actually, because some parts of Greece were actually liberated later. But um, the Ottoman period has actually fared even worse than the Roman period. So you have the Roman period on one hand and the Ottoman period on the other hand, and they're, they've historically been viewed as negative periods in Greek history. Of course, this sort of negative bias is not only particular to Greece, right? Um, avoidance of certain historical periods or, you know, sort of neglect of these periods is common to all countries as we know very well in the United States. 
And as you know, certain countries just choose not to remember specific periods for, for different reasons. And again, for the Greeks um, of the modern era, it's just one of those periods that they don't really want to think much about. Well, the, um, the Roman period, uh, I, I think I read in the paper, lasted six centuries, and you labeled it in the paper calling it prosperous. Uh, are we talking culturally, economically? How, how was it a good thing? That is a very good question, and I get asked that a lot, actually. Um, I label it as mainly prosperous, and mainly is kind of the key word there. And depending who you actually ask and which stratum of society in Rome and Greece you decide to focus on as someone who studies ancient history, it was actually rather prosperous, especially after the first century or so um, of Roman rule, so right after the conquest. Of course, keep in mind that most of the historical sources were written by elite males. So they kind of experienced Roman rule differently um, than your average person living in Greece at that time. The period from the conquest in the second century BC to roughly, I would say, the beginning of the first century AD was pretty difficult for most Greeks. So there was economic decline, depopulation, and in general, kind of a cultural slump, if you want to put it that way. Many Greeks at that time moved abroad, as you know, either as slaves or as migrants, traders, teachers, craftspeople. So they had many different kinds of jobs um, in the Roman Empire and especially in Italy. So what happened after that mass exodus was that um, many areas of Greece were left depopulated. And this was especially true of um, kind of areas in the countryside like Arcadia and Epiros. Epiros is Northwest Greece, right? Um, the areas that were doing well at that time, both in terms of population and economically, tended to be the port cities. So even from before the Roman conquest, port cities were in general doing pretty well because of trade. And in the Roman period, this kind of intensified. So things started really changing for Greece in the first century AD. And this was, of course, the period of the Pax Romana. And Greece really became prosperous again under the Emperor Hadrian, who ruled between, as you probably know, 117 and 138 AD. So kind of the first third of the um, second century AD. And I actually studied his reign. Um, second century is really my century, <laughs> the period I study most. And yeah, um, so basically the first two centuries, I would say were not um, prosperous at all. And then um, after about six, seven, eight generations, things definitely um, became better for the Greeks in Greece. How do you trace the beginning of what you call the anti-Roman mentality? Uh, well, any, maybe not what you called it, but uh, this anti-Roman mentality that you picked up when you visited Greece and in, in, uh, in people that you met on the street or people that knew what you were doing. How did you pick up on that? How, what were people saying? Yeah, that's also a very interesting question. And it's really a little bit difficult to say when exactly it began because we don't have as many sources from um, the medieval period and even later. 
But um, certainly in terms of the modern Greek states, the first, uh, the modern Greek state, um, the first books written by Greeks for a Greek speaking audience that discussed the Roman period, just a little bit, they don't discuss it at length, um, they appeared in the middle of the 19th century. So that's not too far back if you think about it. Uh, but in general, really, the anti-Roman bias started earlier um, during the Enlightenment, and it was propagated by European intellectuals who were praising Greek art um, at that time and, you know, Greek letters, Greek philosophy, and they kind of saw Roman art and Roman culture as inferior imitations to Greek art. So... Basically, modern Greek intellectuals were influenced by these um, European scholars, and they wrote books and papers that kind of demonized the Romans. But keep in mind that um, this movement kind of started in the 18th century, and the Greek academics were writing mostly in the 19th century about the Romans. Then second, there's the Greek Orthodox Church, which saw the Romans as pagans, of course, but also as persecutors of early Christians. So several saints, for example, um, in the Greek Orthodox Church were martyred under the Romans. Um, so what the church fathers were basically teaching was that Romans in general, you know, looters, rapists, murderers, and they're just not worth studying. So as you can see, it's a combination of sources that brought about the anti-Roman mentality. Um, on the one hand, you have European intellectuals, then the modern Greek intellectuals, and at the same time, the Orthodox Church. So it's kind of a combination of academia and church. Do you have any uh, personal experiences you can relate while you were, while you were studying or researching that uh, showed this bias? Yes, um, I have several anecdotes actually, which were from uh, people that I met in Greece. During I my love research. anecdotes. I know, I know, I like them too. Um, <laughs> I'm really glad you're asking me this question. So um, I actually discussed a few of them in my paper. And the most amusing one was um, when I was inspecting some ancient lamps at Knossos in Crete. So this was when I was a graduate student um, working on my dissertation. And I was in one of the storage rooms at Knossos. So I see this kind of um, older male guard and he's kind of intrigued by what I was holding. So he knew that these were lamps, but he asked me, um, what are those? And he was asking, of course, about the time period and not about what kind of object they were. Um, so I said in Greek, Romaika, Roman, right? And then he kind of looks at me and he says to me, ah, vromaika, which in Greek means stinky. So basically <laughs> what he was implying was that, oh, come on, why, why would like a young woman like you want to even like look at those stinky Roman objects? Um, I thought that was a little bit strange. I mean, I've had a few other um, personal experiences. So I've had even family members who live in Greece saying that, you know, why should a person like you study the Roman period? The Romans basically destroyed Greece. Why don't you just study earlier Greek material? And this is pretty common among the Greek population um, in general. They just, they're not very well educated about these periods. And 
to be fair, you can't really blame them because Greece has a history of over 5,000 years. So if you study history in school, and obviously most people do, you focus on certain periods more than others. So of course they're gonna focus on the golden age of Pericles more than you know the, the age of Caesar and Marcus Aurelius, you know? So unless someone is really, really interested in history and in ancient history in particular, they're probably not gonna know a lot about the Roman period. And some people, as you very well know, tend to confuse historical epochs and periods. So if they think something in is ancient, I can't tell you how many times I've had people telling me to look at objects from the 1600s, for example, and I know pretty much nothing about the 1600s. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a medievalist or, you know, uh, an early modern historian. So yeah, they, they just, they don't see where to draw the line in terms of periods, so. Do you, do you speak modern Greek? I do. You do. Yeah, I'm bilingual. As being that you, you know modern Greek in your profession, do you have to study ancient Greek? Yes, for sure. Because now, is there a way that you could verbalize to me uh, the difference between ancient Greek and modern Greek? Is there a wide chasm as as maybe and I'm just throwing out an example here, but as maybe a, an English a person speaking English today might have trouble understanding somebody in England during the oh, let me throw one out here 13th century. There might be a slight trouble in understanding a 13th century English speaker. Is it that far or, or is it easier? It's probably a little bit easier because what happens is that a lot of modern Greeks learn ancient Greek grammar and just ancient Greek composition in high school. So they have some background when they go to university. But so modern Greek is actually descended from Ionic Greek and then from um, the Koine Greek. So the, the common Greek after the Hellenistic period that was also spoken in the Roman period. Now for my purposes as a modern Greek speaker, it's much easier to read a text from the Roman period that's Greek than a text from um, Homer's time or um, the classical period because um, Greek was progressively simplified um, after Alexander the Great's conquest. So it was simplified because a lot of foreigners started learning Greek, so they had to have a more simplified language for it. But in terms of understanding it, if I didn't know ancient Greek and um, I was basically like asked to read a text in, I don't know, like Thucydides or Herodotus, for example, um, it would be rather difficult. So it would be kind of like modern English speakers um, reading Middle English texts, not quite, you know, old English, like really, really old English, like Beowulf, but kind of Middle English. About 60% of the vocabulary in modern Greek does come from ancient Greek, more or less. So you will definitely recognize some of the words if you're a modern Greek speaker, but the grammar is pretty different. Well, I can imagine being that you are a Greek speaker that, um, when you, when you, I don't know when you began to study uh, ancient Greek, but it probably you had a leg up on other people, would you, would you not? Yeah, um, so I began studying ancient Greek when I was in college. I think I was in either second or third year in college. Um, and it definitely helped. Um, I mean, ancient languages are definitely helpful if 
you're going to do Roman history and ancient Greek history. And especially for someone doing archaeology, you need them to read the epigraphic documents, sometimes writing on objects. Now the question is, are they, can you actually do archaeology and history without knowing these languages? And I would say for archaeology specifically, yes, you can, because it depends on what you're working on, like what subfield of archaeology you're working on. But for history, it's very difficult not to know Latin and Greek. Not that this is a direct comparison, but I, I remember reading a, a book. Uh, you know how Google, you can download uh, unpub uh, books that are out of print? Yes. Or you used to or can. I, I don't know if you can still You still it. can, yes. I, I downloaded a book about uh, high Latin versus low Latin. And, and it, somebody wrote a, actually wrote a paper about what uh, what the people in this, what the uh, patricians how they would have spoke Latin compared to the guy who was horse tree. Yeah. Uh, I th I thought that was kind of fascinating. As for me, I'm still learning English, but anyway, <laughs> we're all still learning English. Uh, oh, just a side note, I I asked a guy who's a, uh, a Spanish speaker, was it easy to learn English? And he he said too many words that mean different things. <laughs> um. Are there, are there Greek accomplishments uh, in the arts or literature during that Roman period that you can refer to um, that, um, like that guy who, who turned his nose up because you were looking at a lamp? I mean, are there things that we're not aware of uh, uh, or should be aware of during that Roman time that you could talk about? Yeah, so there are many, many, many. Um, so let's begin with art and architecture first, right? So anyone who has been to Athens has seen some of the famous buildings in Athens. So the Odeon of Herodotus Atticus, um, the Panathenaic Stadium, Hadrian's Arch and Library, um, the Temple of Olympian Zeus, and I could go on and on. So um, they are some of the most iconic monuments in the city today and um, all belong to, of course, what the Greeks call the Romeokratia. Um, specifically, most of them are from the second century AD, which, as I said, is really my century that I study. Um, By the way, what makes the second century so darn interesting? Oh, it was the height of Roman Greece. It was definitely okay. um, also the height of the... Um, the marriage, if you will, of Greco-Roman culture. So for the first time, I think the Greeks and the Romans really came together under what you would term a Greco-Roman culture. So um, other areas of Greece um, also have some fantastic Roman period remains as well. So Corinth, um, Philippi, the city of Gorton and Crete. And most of these buildings, interestingly, would have been designed and built by Greeks in the Roman period, right? By, you know, local people. So if you have the Roman Empire and you say that something is Roman, something in France, for example, is Roman, it doesn't necessarily mean that it was built by Italians. Could have easily been built by local Gallic peoples um, following Roman um, architectural rules and following Roman architectural um, design basically of course then um just to get back to the accomplishments question um there's also of course a lot of literature so there was a movement in the second century a.d called the second sophistic um which lasted kind of from 
the the later part of the first century AD to the earlier part of the third century, and really the second century was kind of um, the time that it flourished. And some of the writers of the second sophistic include um, many that you would be familiar with. So Plutarch, for example, um, Sextus Empiricus, Pausanias. They were not all members of the second sophistic um, literary circle, but they lived in a time and under the cultural influence of the second sophistic. And of course, um, last but not least, let's also mention the Dr. Galen, right? So the Galenic corpus is one of the most well-known medical writings from antiquity. And there's actually a wonderful Ga uh, Galen exhibit at NYU, New York University. And it's an online exhibit right now. So you know how the pandemic has brought back an interest in ancient medicine. So all in all, um, Roman, the Roman period in Greece produced some really great minds and some really great art and architecture. And it's still around today. Um, I, I just have... Um... I think that we can uh, both agree that um, our perception of history is guided by the present or the, the near past. Like, uh, for instance, the Russians, I believe, this is my personal belief, I believe the Russians are the way they are because of uh, Napoleon and being invaded by the Germans. I think their perception of the world is, is formed by that. By invasion uh, or? Well, excuse me? So their perception of the world is formed by invasion? By invasion, that's my belief. I could be wrong, but part of it anyway. And it's, uh, if that's true, uh, how can we believe anything about the past as being accurate? If we're, if we're reading it with glasses of the present, uh, how, can, how can we look back and say this is truly the past or this is what, what they thought? I mean, I, I like to say that there's not much difference between the modern man and and the ancient that were both human beings, but the but the ancient had certain uh, set of beliefs, and the modern man has a certain set of beliefs, and and uh, though there's very similarities because we're both human, our perceptions are different. So um, that's a really great question. And if I'm getting, and if I'm. And if I'm uh, asking a question that should be conducted over a glass of wine during a party, I'm sorry, but I just I just have to know. Uh, do, do you have a view of this? So basically, you're asking um, if our perception of history is guided by the present. Um, and yes, I do. In fact, my students tend to ask me this question a lot. Um, to a certain extent, it definitely is. So even though we have historical sources and we have the writings of these ancient people who actually, um, some of them actually witnessed the events themselves, but many of them actually did not. We have to remember that. Some of them were writing about these events 100 to 200 years after they occurred. The events basically depend on the interpretations of the writers and their sources, um, and in turn, we think what these past interpreters of historical events interpreted. So in a way, it's kind of like an interpretation of the interpretation, so to speak. Does this make sense in a way? I know it's a little bit of a loaded concept. Um, so we are also beholden to the biases of our sources. And um, in turn, we bring our own biases um, to these sources. 
Um, the same can also be said of the archaeological record, even though, for example, if you find something in an excavation and it's a pot, you know it's a pot, right? It's not, you're not going to bring your own biases and say it's not a pot. <laughs> Unless, you know, you come from a culture where this might represent something other than a pot. But in terms of understanding the cultural significance of an archaeological find, then again, it, it depends on your interpretation and um, your experience, your knowledge, and also the biases you bring in. So, I mean, do you want to look at it from um, a Marxist perspective? Do you want to look at it from a capitalist perspective? It, it depends on what theoretical background you want to bring into it as well, political too. Yeah, I think there was a book uh, about Spartacus written by a, a gentleman named Fast, F-A-S-T, uh, I think there was some, uh, I think he wrote it from a political perspective because at the end of the book, I was surprised for, he started, uh, he, had a, he had a chapter, he was talking about using slaves to make armor or something like that. And, and it sounded like he was making a dig at corporations or something along those lines. Yeah, that's very common. Uh, it papers. sounded that way anyway to me. Uh, is, <clears throat> is the anti-Roman view, uh, more person on the street or is it shared by Greek academics? So it used to be that Greek academics were not really interested in the Roman period in Greece. And um, to be fair, as I said, neither were most European academics. And this trend kind of shifted um, after the middle of the 20th century. So not too long ago. And at that point, um, a number of scholars um, outside Greece began working on um, the gr Greek literature of the second sophistic that I mentioned earlier. And then archeologists and art historians kind of followed in their footsteps. So uh, by the 1990s, um, there was this gradual shift then in academic attitudes toward the Roman period in Greece. And since the 1990s, we've had a lot of academic interest in Roman Greece, especially in the past decade. But as far as the average person on the street goes, um, you know, as you would expect, they're confused about different historical periods. So most of them cannot tell Roman from classical or from Byzantine. It's it's difficult because they're they're also not um, trained and they're also not educated in looking at periods that were not considered Greek in quotation marks. Um, so for example, if you ask an average Greek citizen on the street in Athens, tell me from which period Hadrian's arch dates, they will probably say the classical or the Byzantine period. So, because those are the historical periods they know best and people usually respond with, you know, what they know best. Well, listen, Anna, I wanna thank you so much for the time that you gave me. I Thank you. Will. It was very enjoyable. You have a good rest of the day. You too. Have a nice time. Bye. This concludes another episode of Ancient Rome Refocused. Oh, I almost forgot. I promised to tell you where I saw Anna before. Check out the paintings of Lawrence Alma Tandema.